Support for Even the Score podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code SOUNDTRACK at manscaped.com. Again, that code is soundtracked, and use that at manscaped.com. Now, let's get into the episode. everyone and welcome back to the even the score podcast a podcast about soundtracks and scores from movies tv shows and video games i am of course dawn and i am of course joined by my co-host anthony and jason hello to you both good afternoon and good afternoon to both of you fellas well here we are again we are in our second episode of our second season we are continuing our study into genres and after we finished up our first uh, episode looking at rom-coms we decided to continue on in kind of a, a bit of a fun happy-go-lucky feeling sort of stream and we decided to jump right into musicals so we are going to be looking at musicals in both kind of the golden age of the musicals dating all the way back to like the 40s and 50s classic hollywood all the way up to the late 2000s here and we are going to be looking at just some of our favorite musicals that we've been uh, enjoying over the course of our personal movie experience uh, maybe there's some personal connections there maybe there's just some damn entertaining things that we like about these musicals but that is going to be the thread of today's episode but of course we are going to kick off today's episode as we do with every single episode that we do and we're going to talk about what you're listening to so I'm going to kick off I will talk about what I think everybody has been talking about recently which is their love of squid game <laughs> squid game has been something i've just jumped right into as along with everybody else and uh, i've really enjoyed it it's been a great kickoff to spooky season as we are deep into october here already and i think uh squid game obviously has kind of taken over the the zeitgeist right now with i think over uh, like 111 million streams just since it was yeah, released it's huge it's everywhere it's nuts if we don't see at least a dozen <laughs> red jumpsuited in individuals wandering around the streets on halloween i will be thoroughly surprised no way i want the giant doll the girl with the red light excellent Green light. Mm, yeah i want that go. costume i want the whole bunch yeah. of those <laughs> i mean i guess the thing about that though is that i'd be looking for the um what is it uh that mascot uh from the fast food place is it uh, oh, uh, something big boy uh, Big boy, oh, yeah, I mean, boy. I'd be expecting him right yeah, next to totally. her, though, because that's exactly what I think of every time I see it. It's uh, legit. They seem eerily similar. But the thing that's been really catching my ear with Squid Game is the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is really interesting. And there's some, I think, some things that we could pull apart in future episodes. Specifically, there's kind of this dual situation with Squid Game. The first is the use of classical music to be really eerie oh. and ominous. And it's kind of utilizing yes. the Blue Danube to indicate the start of a new game. You 
usually properties that are put out for consumption utilize classical music because they're kind of royalty free. You can throw them in there and they're well known and it's easy to utilize them. But I think what Squid Game was able to do with the use of classical music was really interesting. They made it really eerie and ominous and something like the Blue Danube, which was used in 2001 to kind of indicate lightness and space travel now has this really sinister context with a whole new generation, which associates it with, all right, it's the beginning of a game where a whole bunch of people are going to die. So I think there'd be some interesting conversations to be had about where classical music is utilized. The other element of Squid Game that I definitely want to talk about is the score component. So the score, the composer was Jun Jae and the score I think is really interesting in its minimalist sort of style, just how it's utilizing really creepy elements to build tension. The composer was doing some really interesting things with really simple stuff and then taking really traditional sort of Asian inspired music and putting it into the score itself. That has been my obsession lately. I'm not the only one, and it's been a, a really great thing to watch and listen to for the last few weeks. Nice. Just out of curiosity, how do you uh, access it? Just Spotify and you just let it rip or? The score? Yeah. I found it on YouTube. Usually people um, kind of post the entire album on YouTube and then they'll put the timestamps in so you can jump track to track. But I just usually put it on, then I'll be working and I'll be listening to it. Or uh, this time I actually just sat down and purposely listened to it because I was so interested to see how it sounded outside the the actual visuals of what was going on in Squid Game. So that's how I did it. Got it. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Who wants to go next? I mean, I'll jump in. Sure. Um, for me, I hadn't been buying as much music lately, but I did run into, uh, you know, shout out to my local record sh store, um, Soundgarden. I picked up a, an older Freddie Gibbs album and another uh, Flying Lotus uh, an EP that I happened to see, and I was like, yoink. Then I also grabbed some CDs just because, not that I'm heavily back into CDs and like, you know, oh, like all this older media stuff, but because I like listening to stuff in the car and the higher quality I can get it, the better. I like grabbed like some older stuff and I realized, man, the whole loudness war thing that like, you know, maybe I don't know how much you guys are up on, like it really does play a factor because like older CDs, even from like the 90s or whatever, they just just don't sound the same even from a cd and i'm like damn that sucks but um aside from that i think i told you guys some weeks ago that like i got the uh, roots sort of first album but mm -hmm. not really yes. first album and there's a song on there that i like a lot and i discovered it sounds amazing in my car but it's a little harder to find that cd uh than you know the album i just got directly from like their online store so i happened to see one of the homegrown uh the beginner's guides to understanding the roots volume one which was like and i think they had a couple of these like sort of like a one-off thing that had like uh basically a greatest hits type thing and it was on there and i was like this is amazing so i like played it all the way home um but i did that specifically for silent treatment because it's just an, a really cool jam But that's that's pretty much everything I'm listening to now. Nice. 
Super sweet. Jason, did you say that the Roots like put out their own individual compilations, like those understanding, or is that somebody that was kind of putting it together? I'm pretty sure they, you know, um, looking at it, it came from OK Player. They definitely did this themselves. Cool. That's a good way of doing it. I mean, but this is like ages ago. Like, I, I can't remember exactly when these uh, CDs came out. I want to say it's probably a good 10, 15 years ago or something like that. But I happened to see one for like four bucks and I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in. Yoink. Use CDs for $4. Man, that yeah. is retro. Well, the crazy thing is new CDs, it, depending on what it is, like I got uh, some of these other new ones I was talking about for like two for 10, Ooh. which... You know, I like mean, it's like releases? it's crazy town. No, not new okay, releases, but, but well, new CDs, new yeah. unopened CDs. Wow. What? Yeah, that's kind of bonkers to me. Yeah, I mean, but that's just kind of like what the CD market is right now. Like nobody's buying CDs, no. so. And I joked about this a couple of years. I actually think there's going to be a CD renaissance. Like there's a bubbling culture under there. Like I know cassettes are really huge right now, and they're very almost mainstream again mm -hmm. and i have a feeling cds are gonna come back too i think there's gonna be like this weird renaissance even though in the next 10 to 15 years that all of a sudden cds are gonna be like the sought after anyway that's just my wild prediction i mean you could be right although i think the only thing that could potentially change that and make it not like records is so the one the only reason that i'm interested in cds at all nowadays is because ripping them directly into the computer mm. i can create a lossless file whereas you know if you're streaming or you're buying it from like you know plug in almost anything except save title or something like that you know it's a lossy format it's like maybe 320 kilobytes per whatever at best and you know compressed music is pretty good like when you're just sort of not paying much attention to it but like if you are kind of like a sound quality geek like i am that kind of matters eventually and so I think that, you know, right now, a lot of services aren't necessarily putting out lossless formats as like, you know, to stream, like, and if they are, they're doing it like really expensively. The only thing I could see kind of killing that though, is memory getting as it has been for ages, getting cheaper and, you know, storage and servers, like running that stuff more efficiently. Like that may be a reason why CDs don't come back in the same way. Whereas like, you know, with a record, there's a specific feel a there. There's really no feel with yes. CDs. It's yes. just about sound quality. Right. Yep, that's fair. Well, if we are here in 10 years and Anthony, we will <laughs> identify, uh, we will, we're talking about your 50th. We'll, yes! we'll figure out. We'll figure out if you are right on your call that My there is a, a renaissance of CDs return. Listen, I am a huge fan of callbacks. So if that actually does happen, ugh, my heart would melt in the best way. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I mean, cassettes came back, and if they if they can come back, I mean, and damn, anything can. I think cassettes came back very quickly. Mm -hmm. I feel like there was just all of a sudden this, like, I had seen it as people doing their own versions of it. Um, and then all of a sudden it was like Casey Musgraves is selling cassettes of her album. And I'm like, what happened there? That escalated really quickly. It was like somebody was selling them out of the truck. And then like two years later, it's back in full form. I'm like, this is really weird. Interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> they they obviously have not gone through the experience of having to uh, reinsert the innards of a cassette over and over again because your machine is totally out, I mean. and finally the like gen z generation is gonna get the like pencil in the tape mm -hmm. jokes and memes again i'm like oh finally the education of old times is happening back in yeah, back I mean, in what's my a day. pencil <laughs> oh no 
That's a pencil. They'll have to sell them like in joint packages. Like when you buy a Casey Musgrave cassette, you get a free four pack of pencils. It just makes sense. Unsharpened. Anthony, what have you been listening to? Well, uh, I'm still jamming on that Casey Musgraves record, and I'm really enjoying that. Um, I'm also really enjoying that Italians Do It Better, the Madonna cover album, which I've mentioned the last couple episodes. I've been obsessed with that. Uh, I would say the newest thing that I've been really listening to a lot is uh, Kim Petras' Turn Off the Dark, or Turn Off the Light, sorry. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned her last year, or at some point. I, um, But yeah, uh, it's spooky time, and I feel like Kim Petras, who's a pop star who's kind of on the rise right now and making a little bit of a splash, she released a horror album, uh, 2018 and 2019, Volume 1 and 2. And there was a whole bunch of internet rumors that she was going to release Turn, uh, Turn Off the Light, Volume 3, this year. Um, and then she posted on her Instagram just the other day, uh, basically responding to people who keep asking about it. And she looked not irritated, but she was just like, uh, Sue. Should have seen it coming, baby. Should have seen it in my eyes. It's not like I never told you. Shouldn't come as a surprise. You were higher than you So, uh, yeah, I've just been jamming on that. It's been a, a spooky Halloween season. So my Halloween playlist is out again. And... I uh, always go through a little bit of a, a repeat cycle in October for my music listening. I'm like, well, I'm legally obligated to play nothing but spooky music or else I'm going to get spook arrested. What's a horror soundtrack that you would recommend people listen to that you might be thinking is flying under the radar? Well, I don't think it's necessarily flying under the radar, but in the last couple of years, I would say the, the, the soundtrack that I continuously come back to because I think they just did such a good job of it, is the soundtrack to Us. The Jordan Peele movie that came out a bit a couple years ago um, that just had its own feel to it. It had its own vibe. It's like got this choral singing as the main kind of theme throughout it. And I keep coming back to that. Honestly, I, I don't even realize it until it kind of comes up in my spooky playlist. And then I actually go and listen to the album. Um, and it's by a guy named Michael Abels. And uh, I'm really recommending that. I know it wasn't always everybody's favorite movie, especially after Get Out. Expectations were so high. So Us was a little bit of a sidestep for him. But I actually uh, really enjoyed uh, it. <laughs> sidestep. That's a nice way of putting it. It's stuck monkey balls. I knew. Oh. Jason hated that movie. So I knew when I was going to make this recommendation. I'm like, I'm probably going to have to. set up the wiffle ball tee for me? I just, I couldn't help. But going, play. going, gone. Jason's knocked it out of the park. Uh, 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 yeah. Man. Oh, God, that movie. Oh, I know. It's... Well, all right. There is what you're listening to. Thank you both for that. We are going to take a little bit of a break here, and we're going to jump into our main topic, talking about musicals. <sighs> hey, Jason. Hey, what's happening? I don't know, Jason. Have you ever felt a little tangled and not so fresh down there? Oh my god, dude. Yes, all the freaking time. Oh. The nads get sweaty, man. It's a problem that I'm glad we can talk about. Yes, but there's help, man. I recently picked up a package from my new favorite company, Manscaped. Specifically, I happened to get the uh, performance package, and then, lo and behold, 
they saw fit to work with us uh, podcasters. But let me say this, uh, man, the lawnmower, awesome. You need that in your life and you can get it without a prescription. Hey, Jason, I think you've really solved my problem with your balls to the floor solution. I really appreciate this information and I'm totally going to look up the lawnmower. Dude, you gotta. I mean, I, you know, I was dealing with chef's chocolate salty balls for a long time, and now I can keep them puppies smooth. I I spent all my young adult life waiting for hair all across my body, and then I got it, and I hate it. I'm constantly trying to get rid of it. It's good for, like, tummy hair. It's great for keeping the armpits under control. It's actually even pretty good for like us bearded fellows. You don't want to pull out the razor and sort of like shave up the scraggly ends outside of the beard. It's pretty good to just pull that out and, you know, zip zip and you're you're all good. It's got a bunch of different uses. Hey guys, are you talking about cleaning up hair? Yeah. You betcha, Don. Well, let me tell you, because I'm always a big fan of making sure that I've got no nose or ear hair visible. I don't want to become one of those older fellas that just has like forests coming out of nostrils and earlobes galore. So with Manscaped as well, you can get their Weed Whacker, which is a great little tool to trim those bad boys up above the belt, not only below. It, that That is a pretty good uh, uh, mention there, Don, because, man, there's nothing quite like playing with your ears or something like that and just feeling the fact that you have hair, which, you know, as a middle-aged something or other, is annoying as all hell. Because it's like, what does it do? It, it's just there for other people to call out and bring to your attention and for you to feel embarrassed and shame over. So, yeah, the, the, the Weed Whacker is pretty awesome for that and nose hair because, again... What the hell? We've all been pretty fortunate to receive some great devices from our new sponsor, Manscaped. So it's really going to help me make sure I'm looking my best. And and Jason, like you said, making sure that all the hair is dealt with. Those products are, are helping me deal with everything above, below, around, wherever it is on my body. And they really do think of everything. They even give you little newspapers to like throw under your feet so that, you know, you don't have to go through hell trying to sweep up all the hair. So on that note, you know, if you uh, are a fan of this podcast and think that Manscaped can help you out, that you basically can get 20% off and free shipping by using the code soundtrack at manscaped.com. It's 20 freaking percent with free shipping. Did you say 20% off? 20% dude. And free shipping? Yeah, and free shipping. So go ahead and unlock your confidence and always use the right tool for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will frickin' thank you. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel. And so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real. Well, welcome back. It is time for us to jump into our main portion here of the podcast. That's us talking about musicals. Now, musicals have a huge, long history when it comes to movies and television. We're talking dating back all the way to the 20s and 30s. We have where sound's starting to become a, a norm in movies around 1927. We've got the jazz singer as being that first talkie film and having kind of the first sort of introduction of music into screens. And then you've got kind of the 30s to 50s, which is that golden age of cinema when it comes to movie musicals. 
But of course, all the way up to today, musicals span a lot of different genres. They go into a lot of different mediums. There's some fantastic television um, musicals. Of course, we have things like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is all about that sort of standard musical structure where people are not only just kind of talking with each other, but they break into spontaneous song to fill the line, the place of dialogue. Uh, you've got Buffy the Vampire Slayers, Once More with Feeling episode, which is a huge hit with that show. But of course, you've got your, your more modern soundtracks that, that adhere to that classic sort of movie, musical genre. All the themes still stand true. And I know we're going to touch a little bit into that. And the three of us are going to talk about the musicals that really sort of spoke to us, what really sort of hits home, uh, why we enjoy the genre. And then we're going to maybe clean up the segment with some of the honorable mentions, things that didn't get uh, specifically talked about, but definitely things we wanted to highlight. And I'm going to kick us off. So I've got two here today that I really want to talk about that just speak to my love of the genre. One is very sort of run of the mill, low hanging fruit, sort of this is kind of what you're thinking of when it comes to um, movie musicals. And that's La La Land. La La Land was uh, released in 2016 to huge acclaim. And in rewatching it just recently for this podcast, La La Land definitely does adhere to that classic idea of what a golden age of cinema movie musical is. They have very monochromatic costumes, very sort of Hollywood love in itself. They, Hollywood and like Oscars and all of them, they love movies about movies. And that's essentially what it is. From the start, that scene in LA traffic and all the people jumping around on their cars talking about how it's just another day in the sun and how much they love being in Hollywood because they came here trying to make their big break. And just from, from minute one of that movie, you know that this is just going to be one big old Hollywood circle jerk. They're just going to love themselves throughout <laughs> the entire the movie. Perfect sum up. Absolutely. That's, that's what it is, yeah. really. Yep. Summer Sunday nights, we'd sink into our seats right as they dimmed out all the lights. A technicolor world made out of music and machine. It called me to be on that screen and live inside each scene. Yes, you've got your secondary plot with Ryan Gosling and his love of jazz and all that, but it still ties into that sort of old style Hollywood mentality of jazz is this dying genre of music in his eyes and he needs to revitalize it. Of course, we've got the classic sort of white man coming in to save something that is classically non, non-white, non very sort of Hollywood tropey back in the 50s as well. And then you've got your just your big set pieces when it comes to this movie. You have at the end of La La Land, you've got basically a seven to ten minute sequence that has no dialogue it is just kind of set piece after set piece like lots of dancing lots of orchestrated music like booming score going through this alternate reality of what happens if the two main characters had stayed together and, and continued on but what i like about la la land is that it does kind of hold true to those tropes it does try to reimagine what the classic hollywood musical is but it's still trying to do things a little bit more modern. It's taking some of the elements and, and bringing it up to date. Um, the thing I will say is, is probably the weakest is the songs. I think some of the songs in that musical don't hold true to what kind of you think of when you talk about classic cinema musicals. They are catchy tunes that you remember for years and years and years. I don't think people are going to be singing City of Stars or Audition like they're singing Do Re Mi or like The Hills Are Alive from Sound of Music. Like those are things that are going to stand the test of time. This movie is going to fade into the darkness. City of Stars Are you shining just for me? 
the only reason I think it really has continued to be in the conversation is because of what happened at the Oscars in 2017. The If you don't know the story, I'll just briefly go over it. It's the Best Picture Oscar, and Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway are up on stage, and they are given an envelope that they think is for Best Picture. When Warren Beatty opens it up, he sees Emma Stone, La La Land. He had actually been given the envelope, the spare envelope, for Best Actress, which has like, just been awarded before this. So he kind of stumbles, and, and he's he's kind of playing it a little bit off, like con he's confused, he's worried about what's happening. He passes it over to Faye Dunaway, and Faye Dunaway just says, La La Land. She sees La La Land on there, despite that it says Emma Stone, who won the Oscar just before this award. La La Land. <laughs> So everybody gets up. It's the end of the show. As that's happening, like producers are running down the aisles trying to give them the real envelope for Best Picture. And as they're kind of giving their acceptance speeches, the third producer says, oh, and by the way, we lost. We lost, by the way. But, you know. I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. And then somebody else says, yes, Moonlight, you actually won. So there's this crazy sort of confusion going on. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. Come on, I, this is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. And for the first time in history, the, the wrong winner was announced. And up comes the producers of Moonlight, who actually won Best Picture for that year. Thank you. Very clearly, very clearly, even in my dreams, this could not be true. But to hell with dreams. I'm done with it, because this is true. Oh my goodness. That's the only reason I think we still remember La La Land as well as we do for that horrible gaffe. It's a good movie. I enjoy it. I think it's fun, and it has some decent songs, great acting, but I don't think it's going to stand the test of time in any way, shape, or form. Even just listening to you recount what happened, I still get so many awkward vibes from that night. But to me, I actually loved La La Land. Ooh. I know I was like, I really loved the music. I really enjoyed <laughs> its circle jerk quality to Hollywood musicals. <laughs> uh, I really felt like it was one of the stronger musicals I've seen since Chicago. And uh, so that's why for me, it was a bit of a, wow. a, a, it was a strong movie for me. It was a strong, now that being said, I don't come back to this music a lot. Mm -hmm. And so even me just saying, yeah, it's as good as Chicago. I'm like, mm, is it though? Because I definitely sing uh, when you're good to mama, like, you know, all the time, but the audition, I only save that for my dreams. So, no, I guess I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, I, I'd agree. Maybe La La Land isn't as great as we like to think it is, or at least as we like to remember it was. I think that's it. Like, in memory, it, it definitely can adhere. And so that's why I rewatched it. I wanted to make sure I was fresh for the podcast and that I, I recalled, like, since the first time I saw it, which was shortly after it was released. And yeah, the, the song's weren't memorable aside from that big set piece at the beginning and then the orchestration at the end that kind of very american in paris just like let's take 10 minutes and kind of do some dancing and no dialogue and just kind of wrap up the film those are the only things that were really memorable to me i didn't remember any of the other songs because i don't think the singers are as strong they're great actors but i don't think ryan gosling or emma stone are amazing singers they're great but i don't think they're 
Julie Andrews. That's why I think that they're they're forgettable. Whereas I think about something like Chicago, I can think about John C. Riley singing Mr. Cellophane. I can think about the huge sort of pieces that were in that movie. And I think, yeah, it probably inches it well above La La Land. But I think I remember it more from the, the Oscar awkwardness. Huh. Well... I, I enjoyed hearing you talk about the story just because I, I like gaffes like those in general. And it made me think of like the whole Steve Harvey and like, you know, oh, the, yes. Miss, uh, was it Miss Universe yes. or whatever Miss oh, America. Right. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I, you know, like I had sort of like memes going off in my head. Um, so I'll be honest and say that this is one of the many things I didn't see. I did see Chicago, though. So for you to put that in the same company sort of is like wow really because like yeah i just i think back to chicago it's been some time since i've seen it but like uh because it was like Catherine zeta jones queen latifah like some other folks that were in that like you know i still think about and all that jazz from time to time which is from that right yeah like i'm not yeah yeah so i mean like that soundtrack those some of those songs definitely stand out to me in a way that I don't think anything that I've sort of heard secondhand from La La Land, because like not seeing it, you still sort of people talk about it. Yeah, nothing rises to that level to me. But again, I guess without having seen it, it's kind of hard for me to to weigh in it authoritatively, but interesting. Maybe we should just kind of just cancel all that out and talk about Chicago for a couple of minutes here. <laughs> so my first pick was Chicago. 2002 is fantastic. No, it, no I, that's for our Broadway episode, you good, guys. Good call. Good call. Fair enough. I think that's one of the things about La La Land that I wanted to bring to the table, that it is a unique original script for a musical that wasn't adapted from a, a previous property. So I think that's why I wanted to, to talk about it. I, I can And I can respect that. Starting from scratch to create all those songs and to create the, the set pieces and everything that went around it, very, very hard and good on the direction and writer for doing that but it's pretty good it's not fantastic and i think the soundtrack it's great the orchestration's unbelievable like the jazz pieces that were put into that movie are fantastic and i think the original score that was done is really really great i've been listening to it and i can the motifs that kind of blend through and but again i think it just falls a little bit flat in comparison to some of the others just out of curiosity yeah, yeah. do you think that the singers of the songs had something to do with it like if if the songs structurally were good was it just a matter of having the wrong singers? Like, because, you know, I mean, to, uh, sometimes things are great right out the the gate, but sometimes, you know, either they develop a cult following later or somebody comes and redoes it and, like, they have the right people in those roles. And it's like, the songs were brilliant, so, like, you have the right singers, and it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I want to get Anthony's take on this as well, but for me... It- La La Land came at the same time as when Les Mis was being released again on video and what what Les Mis tried to do and and what I think La La Land did is they really held true to the these are our singers singing live and they might not have the most polished like classically trained voices but they're real people and when I think about musical I think about people who are like excessive and over the top like these are huge bombastic movies and they have like you are breaking out into song in place of speaking so you have to kind of suspend disbelief a little bit so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt saying that yeah not normal people don't sound like those amazing voices like you hear classically so so with lame is and with this it sounded like these are real people that are doing the singing and i just think yeah they were definitely weaker than expected if there comes like a time when they redo something like this or if it's being put on broadway or whatever and maybe they get some of those classically trained singers in there to sing these songs i think that might 
elevate it to that next step and really sort of propel it to where it should be, which is kind of in that mythical fantasy world musical space that I think it it occupies, but almost borders along. It's the real world, but we're also floating around a planetarium and dancing in the stars sort of deal. Yeah, musicals are a little difficult with that. And you have to strike a right balance of it, especially if that musical is based off a live production, because then you've got expectations of people going into that musical being like, well, is it going to be like the live show or is it going to be its own thing? And so I think a good example of how not to do it is definitely what's going on with Dear Evan Hansen right now. Ah. And I think there's a bigger conversation we could have, but I don't want to detract right away from Dawn's. But La La Land came out around that time when Lee Miz was very well known for having the actors sing live on set, which is a way to capture the live essence of a Broadway show. It does tend to focus more on acting than singing, which for a musical can be a weird choice. If you're like trying to emphasize that this is a musical and that this is fun and about music, but you rely on the acting and the voice not matching that polished sound i think sometimes there's a bit of a miss and i think it works in some places and works and doesn't and la la land for me it works on one level because yes it is exactly how a musical would be but at the same time there is a maybe a little bit of a loss of quality and it's more based on the acting which would explain why you know chicago didn't win any acting other than the best supporting but emma stone got best actress for la la land that's a she very did. good point that's she a did very act the hell out of that movie. Yeah. But her singing wasn't the best. Right. <laughs> so for a musical, you kind of got to ask, why was there so much focus on the acting and not the music? <laughs> But speaking about this idea that musicals occupy really weird spaces, I think drifts into my second selection really well, which is 1974's Phantom of the Paradise. That was which, a good segue. That why, was thank a you. really good segue. Thank you. I'll, I'll pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> it, it, Stranger. <laughs> so Phantom of the Paradise is a wacky rock and roll opera, like rock opera that is so filled with sex drugs rock and roll weirdness the devil phantom of the opera illusions that it just it's so and it's it's set in the 70s so you have obviously like a really weird sort of design for the movie you have weird set direction you have just oddballs everywhere in the film and i just i love it it is the the kookiest musical i've ever seen and it is one of those ones that is way more memorable than la la land ever will be for me and i think it's because it does occupy that weird fantasy world really well where musicals kind of sit i don't think it's a musical in the sense where people are utilizing song in place of dialogue but i think the music in it is really really fun So for those of you who haven't seen it, Phantom of the Paradise is basically Phantom of the Opera sliced in with the Faust storyline. Faust was a magician who sold his soul to the devil for success and fame and glory. So that's kind of built into this where there's this pianist named Winslow Leach who writes this cantata called Faust. And there's this music producer, his name's Swan, played by Paul Williams, who wrote uh, the music for the movie. 
and he basically gets Winslow to sell his soul to him and he takes the, the music, he imprisons Winslow, Winslow escapes, he has all of his teeth pulled, he escapes from prison, he gets his head caught in a record press, and he turns into the Phantom, because half his face is gone, and he puts on this really weird mask, like this weird helmet, that has this almost like sort of bird beak, and he starts terrorizing what's called the Paradise, which is Swan's big sort of rock Xanadu, he wants this place to be where everybody goes, and he puts on Faust to open it. Would Dream a bunch of friends Dream each other smile Dream it never ends um, He's auditioning singers and Winslow eventually starts working with Swan and he wants this girl Phoenix to sing his music. Only The only person who will sing his cantata is Phoenix. But when he walls the Phantom away, Swan decides to put in a male singer named Beef. Yep, there's a character named Beef in this movie. <laughs> Where's the beef? It's amazing. <laughs> and, he, and he decides he's going to put him in the lead. The Phantom finds out, escapes from his imprisonment, and throws a Phantom of the Opera-like lighting implement. It's a lightning bolt, neon light, rather than a chandelier in this case, and fries them and kills them on stage. And then that's where there's all this clamoring and people are loving it. They think it's this huge spectacle. So Swan puts Phoenix back into the main role and then the movie continues and concludes as it does. But it's essentially this, it goes, like, it blends the Phantom of the Opera and this idea of selling your soul to the devil, who ends up being not Swan, but, like, Swan himself has sold his soul to the devil. But playing it with really sort of funky rock music, they have a, a weird sort of nostalgia twist with this band called the Juicy Fruits. Then Phoenix sings, she has this amazing deep voice, and she sings these beautiful songs. Our paths have crossed and parted, this love of And it's just, it's fun. It is goofy, kooky, ridiculous fun. And I think it plays really well around this period, like in October, because it kind of does hit really well with spooky season. One of the things I really kind of take away from this movie is that it was a huge flop when it came out in 74. It's Brian De Palma, who has done some really great work since, uh, before and since, like Scarface and the first Mission Impossible film, things like that. But this movie was a flop. Except for in one location, which is where I think I was able to acquire it, it was Winnipeg, Manitoba, up here in Canada, which is only four hours away from my hometown, which is where I think I acquired it, which is through my uncle, who probably acquired it through his connections to Winnipeg. But Winnipeg, Manitoba was the central like location that was putting Phantom of the Paradise at number one in their box office. And there's like these phantom cons that go on now in Winnipeg, and they've had the entire cast show up and speak to the movie. And there's a documentary called, um, I believe it's called Phantom of Winnipeg. Huh? where Paul Williams says the reason that this movie is a success still is because of the Peggers. It is because of wow. one of Peggers. And he, huh. he acknowledges that there was this weird just anomaly about this love of the Phantom of the Paradise in Winnipeg. So it's a great personal connection to me. The music is really fun. Like it is really funky and they do some really fun stuff with it. There's some beautiful songs. There's some really weird songs. But I think that the, you have fun overall. And it just blends that really sort of classic musical genre, taking something 
something like Phantom of the Opera and spinning it and doing some really fun stuff with it. So I highly recommend it to anybody. Jason, I know we were talking about this movie before the record. I don't know if you had a chance to see anything about it aside from the trailer, but it's a hoot. I didn't I didn't have a chance to watch it yet, so no. But and maybe this is not to steal any thunder from what Anthony will be talking about, but it, it gives me sort of like that whole rock opera sort of vibe type thing. And I think, you know, there's a relationship to something that Anthony would be discussing too. It definitely seems like something I would find sort of I don't know, amusing. You know, like I could see myself watching that and just sort of being like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, all of the feels of like the 70s or whatever and like other things that I've seen from around that time period. The one character, and I forget what his role is, like I keep going back and remembering like, isn't the same dude like performed with Kermit or something like that? Oh yeah. Like on Sesame Street? Yep. Yeah, like that's yeah. like that's like my, my main takeaway from ah. um all of that because I just, yeah, I don't know. I just I'm weird. But it seems cool and it seems like it would be no better or worse than like well maybe that's not fair because i i do really like like little shop of horrors or you know again like rocky horror picture show or stuff like that but anyway from what i saw from the trailer it gives me those vibes so i don't think i would be opposed to watching it i just hadn't watched it yet so i think it definitely has the cult quality down to like like a t especially considering how much of a cult audience that this movie generated, especially Mm -hmm. in Winnipeg. I think part of a cult following recognizes that sometimes people can make creative decisions that seem like a good idea, but then you just realize they were addicted to cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Phantom of the Paradise is Brian De Palma's cocaine explosion. And so I think that lends itself to a cult audience because he probably made it with the best of intentions, but cocaine is a hell of a drug, and it <laughs> makes you do some bad things. So I love that Jessica Harper, like legendary 70s cream queen, is in this. I, I can't recommend it enough. I actually bought the soundtrack not ever having known what it was. I just, like, somebody had mentioned, like, oh, Phantom of the Paradise is probably one of the most f***ed up movies ever. And I was like, really? I have the soundtrack. I bought it, like... On a whim, and then actually seeing it and listening to it, you're just like, whoa. And, Jason, I really like your connection, because I am going to talk about it. This movie came out one year before Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it does feel like Rocky Horror kind of stole the fame away from Phantom of the Paradise. Like, there was a, a legendary cult development happening in Winnipeg before Rocky Picture had ever been released. Uh, and so I will do, like I do want to talk about that connection because I think there is one. There's definitely something there. You, you mentioned the co- cocaine aspect. I didn't even think about that. So what's that saying about Winnipeg then? Good question. Good question. Hello to our fans in Winnipeg. Good call. The cocaine province. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Uh, I, I, yeah. I digress. But those are those are my two. Um, Anthony, just to kind of wrap up, I actually heard the soundtrack before I watched the movie as well. Like mm. that was my introduction to it, and I completely get it. But yeah. I think, I think <laughs> let's let's go over to your selections. Let's go into your two choices here for musicals. I've got to keep control. I 
I like. I think it's a good segue to go from Phantom of the Paradise into Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is my first choice, because I think Rocky Horror Picture Show does owe a lot to Phantom of the Paradise and the fan reaction it received. Rocky Horror Picture Show started off as a Broadway experience, an off-Broadway experience in London, England. And uh, the original uh, cast uh, included Tim Curry. And the show was a satirical send-up of B-movies and horror movies of the 1950s. So it was only natural that the Rocky Horror Picture Show would make a really good movie. Because it really references a lot of film culture and the RKO pictures. And that was it's in its blood. So when it got transitioned into a movie, I think it really hit something that was building within the cultural zeitgeist. Which was, you look at glam rock. was really popular in the 70s. And how this extraordinary over-the-top showmanship was very front and present in a lot of musical acts. There was also the sexual androgyny of the 70s and this notion that, you know, gender roles and really were being not questioned, but brought into the spectrum that this idea that David Bowie had commented on his bisexuality and that really plays into the themes, I think, of this movie and what they were trying to tap into is that even though they were making fun of the, you know, the 50s, it really was a a punk rock, glam rock experience. And so I think those tones that Brian De Palma was trying to elicit in Phantom of the Paradise, Richard O'Brien and the the Rocky Horror Picture Show Broadway crew kind of took some of that and got that inspiration, i.e. cocaine. (laughs) And they made a movie that was outrageous and to this day still plays in theaters and is the longest running theatrical released movie. Uh, at over 41 years now? No, it was released in 1975, so it's... I, Older than me, man. Math is what? hard and stuff. <laughs> but yeah, so I think Rocky Horror Picture Show is probably one of the best musicals, if not the best movie musical of all time. That would be my, you know, throw in, throw the hat in for the contender. And the reason for me is not only its history... And where it's coming from and what it represented. But as a gay person, as a queer identified person, it was the very first time I can remember watching a movie, there being queer content, and it was never villainized or there was never any negative repercussions. For those who don't know, spoiler alert for an over 40, almost 50 year old movie, (laughs) but Frankenfurter is the lead of this intergalactic crew of misfits who have taken over Frankenstein's castle and he is building a man. He is building a man, a Frankenstein man, and taking on the notion of Frankenstein, but making it a full on same sex couple. Frankenfurter is a transvestite and has identified in such the best song ever of Sweet Transvestite. But the movie, one of the biggest plot points is that he's built Rocky Horror Picture as his man bride. I've been making a man with blonde hair and a tan. And he's good for relieving my tension. I'm just a sweet transvestite. 
from transsexual Transylvania. That to me stood out so much as a queer kid. And I remember watching this movie uh, during Halloween. And that was one of the first times I remember watching it on TV. So I must have been about like 10 or 11 years old, maybe. And me just catching this glimpse of this outrageous over-the-top musical where boys are kissing boys, girls are kissing boys, horror things are being happening, and they're singing numbers to old 50s sci-fi elements. It was very strange, but I distinctly remember it having a very positive impact on me. And I loved that movie. I became obsessed with it. I would watch it year-round until I was probably about, I want to say 17 or 18. And I got to go see a live version of it in Toronto at Bloor Cinema. And that cemented it for me because seeing this movie in a theater, a cinema, with other people who were also into it as much as I was, was the first time I ever felt a sense of community. And the music, the soundtrack, was the base of that. Every single person knew every single word that was not only spoken, but sung. And so to hear an entire room of people sing the Time Warp or know every single word to Damn It, Janet, that just blew my mind. I was like, there are other people like me in this world? It's not, I like, I thought I was genuinely one of the only people that put on that movie at three o'clock in the morning and just sang every word. So please don't tell me to can it. Janet. I have one thing to say and that's damn it, Janet. I love you. So having that experience as a queer little kid was really powerful. And to me, it really exemplifies why movie musicals can be so good, even if they were done very poorly and cheaply. <laughs> like, you can't underestimate how cheap Rocky Horror Picture Show is. <laughs> but uh, uh, enough gushing about mine. I want to hear why you guys love Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I can't relate to it on the level that you can, uh, Anthony. I mean, I'm not going to try. I think for me, it's the music, plain and simply. I mean, there's some great songs that came from that. And of all the music that I listen to, 70s rock and rock in general has a certain place that exists. Like, it's something I do definitely dig. But I mean, like, there's something very classic about, like, the time warp that puts it in the same league as, like, Bohemian Rhapsody or something like that. That it's just, like, it's in that sort of canon and it fits like right along and if it comes on it's like yeah it's that's the jam right like so without necessarily understanding all the themes or being able to relate to it on a, a heavy personal level like i just thought it was cool like you know what i mean like obviously it was gender bending it was very sort of like there are no rules and i i dug that and i think that's pretty much all i can really say about it just that like you know it's cool in a way that isn't pretentious like it's just mm. really sort of genuine being... yeah it's yeah that's what it is it's genuine thanks anthony like that uh, that really is the word i was reaching for like it just it feels it feels real everywhere it's been the same like i'm outside in the rain 
for me, my friends and I, we would get together and we would kind of do our Mystery Science Theater nights where we would get a movie and we would comment on it all together and we would just have a good old time. But I think Rocky Horror, when we were wandering through the video store and we saw the cover and it's Tim Curry splashed out on the lips, kind of just all stretched out in his Transylvanian transvestite outfit. Like we were like, all right, this is going to be our movie for the night. But when we watched it, it wasn't a mock. It wasn't like, this is a bad movie. We need yeah. to make fun of it. This was, oh my God, we are so engaged this is amazing we need to do this again and we watched it probably like two more times that same night and we got really into it and just had a blast with it and i think for me it's the the introduction to phantom of the paradise that led me to really embrace rocky horror because i had already seen a really weird movie that started to play with these roles and, and kind of blend it but i think rocky horror stepped it up that little bit and like you said anthony do it done really cheap like rocky horror only had a hundred thousand dollars more in their budget than what phantom of the paradise did so they're doing things on shoestrings and just really doing what you said jason throwing their efforts into the music and into building this really interesting world where as you said anthony there's no judgment it's just all all together like it's just this is normal and again, that's kind of the attitude of the musical sort of genres that things are normal here. We do break out into songs or you'll see people getting into choreographed dance sequences at random. Like what they're doing in Rocky Horror is something completely different and fun and really gender bending and playing with sexuality and just having a, a good old time with it. And yeah, I, I loved it from, from the second I saw it. I have not been to a live screening and it just seems like it's such a blast to have fun because hopefully people are feeling the same way that you did, Anthony, that there is a group and there's this movie that is speaking to me and I can feel comfortable with who I am and, and just having a good old f***ing time with it. Exactly. And just uh, literally having fun and just being in that space with other people to enjoy that movie that you've uh, also shared with. I think it can be very powerful. And specifically, I remember the very first time uh, I went with my high school friend, Marissa, and we were both into the movie Big Time, and she found that there was a screening of it downtown Toronto, and we were going to go, and we got in there, and we sat down, and one of the first things that the host does is ask the audience, who here is a virgin? And they want to know who's never seen the Rocky Horror Picture before. Well, little old Anthony, who is, again, 17 or 18 at the time, didn't know that that's what they were talking about. So when they screamed out, who's here as a virgin? I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be outed as a virgin tonight. And I genuinely became very frightened. I was scared out of my mind. I turned to my friend Marissa and I said, hey, do you want to get going? It's it's okay if you want to go. And uh, she was like, okay, let's just wait and see. Because she, the look of terror in her eyes was also the same. Like, <gasps> we're both going to have to tell these people we're virgins. <laughs> it's honestly, it's one of those things that you just don't know until you get there. And virgin yeah is completely taken as you have never seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so when people ask you, like, they were like, yeah, these virgins over here, let's get these virgins up here. And again, as a virgin at the time, not understanding my own sexuality, I was terrified. But I think that also made me push myself in a way that made me realize, okay, being uncomfortable is upsetting and can be really, up, like, not comfortable. But then once I pushed past that, I got to a place where I was incredibly comfortable and I understood what was going on and I understood why I was uncomfortable. And so I just, I can't gush over it enough. And one of the last things I do want to mention before I move on to my second choice is that I can't mention Rocky Horror Picture Show without mentioning its sequel that nobody wants to talk about. And it's called Shock Treatment. Ooh, shock Treatment. So look out, Mr. 
and it's this movie is absolutely fascinating. I like I would say it's not as good as Rocky Horror Picture Show, but man, the forward thinking and the future topics that this movie introduces is fascinating. Because Brad and Janet are then taken to a live studio audience and they are essentially put on reality TV. And they are exposed to American public through this reality television in in studio home and shop. And they become the big stars. And then there's this weird subplot where the head of the studio is trying to get with Janet. And it goes really weird, but not in the weird way that Rocky Horror Picture Show did. And I actually think it's a genuinely earnest attempt at trying to create a sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which you can't do. So I really recommend just checking out the soundtrack, which I also have on vinyl. I ended up finding and freaking out at an antique show one day and somebody was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. It's like, (laughs) lady, nobody ever does. But uh, there's a song on that soundtrack called Me of Me. (laughs) And it's sung by Jessica Harper because she plays Janet in the sequel. So... Nice little callback to Phantom of the Paradise is that Janet Har- Jessica Harper actually played Janet in the sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show Shock Treatment. You love yourself a callback. Oh, right? It just is so satisfying. The synergies we've got going on here today. Yeah, it's just comedy gold. That is a trippy looking uh, film uh, poster for it. I, I was like Googling it as you were With talking. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. And it's like demonic and he's like smiling. Like he's like the See, Joker. I don't even necessarily went to demonic. It just <laughs> he actually looks more like a perv to me. Like, I don't know. Like, he's just like giving me pervy vibes. Well, like, not- and I wouldn't say he's a perv, but unfortunately, Richard O'Brien does not have the most inclusive views specifically for the trans community. So it's really a weird that uh, he created or helped create something so forward and progressive. But unfortunately, he's shared some views that are very team turf, um, oh, which is unfortunate. Lord. Yeah. So, oh. I mean, it's let's just stop talking about Rocky and Picture Show and talk about Ra- Moulin Rouge. Ooh. Nice segue, right? I look around me and I see it isn't so, <laughs> no. Some people want to fill the world. So Moulin Rouge comes out in 2000. And for those who don't know, it's Baz Luhrmann's jukebox musical. And I didn't even know that, but apparently that was, I didn't know that was a term for a musical until recently, which the, no, the notion is that you have pre-existing music or just music from different genres that are all kind of used as the base. And so um, I remember in university, a friend of mine going to see this movie and I had just started smoking weed. And so I remember her coming back from the movie and coming to me and being like, I think you'd really like this movie on marijuana. And I was like, oh, that's a really good selling point. Like, I, I want to see this movie now. And I did. I watched it. I remember I watched it at home on Christmas break. I, you know, come home and there's this ongoing joke in my family where my dad, uh, I will put on a movie when no one's home. And for some reason, my parents come home right in the middle of the movie. And I have such weird movie choices that my parents, specifically my dad, tend to come downstairs 
and sit in on movies that are just the weirdest thing ever. And they have no idea what's going on. But I'm like, oh, my God, this movie is amazing. And they're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? So my dad comes home half lit and in the bag from like a Christmas party. And I'm watching Moulin Rouge and the green fairies like running around with Nicole Kidman being like, I'm a prostitute. My dad's like, what do you watch? What is wrong with you? And I loved it. I was like, I was on board from song one. And this is a musical that I still to this day will put on the soundtrack at least once a month. Salem and my partner and I have a huge affinity for it. We've created internet videos of us singing the songs in the movie. I'm always Nicole Kidman, obviously. Huh, given. But uh, yeah, I love this movie and this soundtrack. I think the, the songs that he chose were so specific and so right on. When I heard uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit uh, as like part of the, you know, old boys club generation, them doing their snapping fingers in the movie, I was like, I love it. I'm really digging this. I think it's really interesting to see where Baz Luhrmann came from when he was doing his early movies in the 90s, like Strictly Ballroom and all these Australian indie movies. And I think he hits it out of the park with this one, with just the absurdity and the out-of-control, over-the-topness of this, I think is matched. Or I think it matches Rocky Horror Picture Show's outlandish, like, really over-the-top. And I think that's one of the things that makes musicals, for me, easier to digest, is because when they are over-the-top, I'm already just spending my disbelief. So you can go as far as you want. And speeding up camera tricks and using different things is great ways of just having fun with the musical genre. Arabians, India, juggling bears, fire eaters, muscle man. I have a, a very interesting sort of start with Moulin Rouge. At the beginning, I really didn't care for it because I was kind of probably more of a movie snob than I ever should have been, where I was almost against the idea of a jukebox musical where it was all this pre-recorded music being repurposed for a film. It was really bad. And I just, I didn't care for it. Like, I, I know the big piece that a lot of people talk about is the Roxanne sequence, which people love. And like, there's there's the different songs going on at the same time. I really didn't like it at the beginning. I really liked Nature Boy. I liked the start of it. I really like Ewan McGregor in this, but I have come to since really respect Moulin Rouge and enjoy it and get into it. I haven't seen it in a little while, but that soundtrack, I mean, when you've got a, a movie that can produce two really solid soundtracks and both of them sell really well and continue to be put on it's a quality movie and it does embrace the genre really well so i respect what it was doing there for sure so i guess this is where not necessarily having the background that you had led me to a totally different place i had no idea that a jukebox musical was a thing i definitely remember moulin rouge really actually i think that's one of those films that you know thinking back in I hadn't really thought about it at all in quite some time. That was one of those films that really put me in my feels. And it's exact. It's kind of hard for me to pinpoint exactly why. But I just remember that story being one that was just like, I just really liked the story and where it went. And the fact that it used music from wherever it used music was totally irrelevant to me. Like the fact that I knew the music yeah. was great. But the fact that it wasn't like its own music or anything like that didn't matter to me whatsoever. It was for that, it was one of those stories that I think, and this is really hard to do, like with The Sound of Music. If you can sort of take yourself out of the, the brilliant songs that were interlaced throughout that 
and just sort of appreciate what was happening with the story. Mm. It, it's like that mm. to me. Um, yeah. Good call. So, yeah, I don't... Those songs are all brilliant on their own. So them being used in the, the musical makes no never mind to me. But for me, the, what that's one of those musicals that... I almost for a moment forget that it's a musical because the story is compelling enough and I have a soft spot in, you know, this here heart of mine for that film that really has nothing to do with the music. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to poo poo the music because like, yeah, all that stuff's great. Like, I mean, the, the Roxanne, the, I mean, how can you even talk about that film without the, the pink and the, the Maya and all like, <laughs> like all that's a pretty critical, uh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it, it's just, it's, I like it. I, I like that. Yeah. I like that musical a lot. It's a really fascinating take that you actually enjoy the story of the music or the story of the movie almost a little bit more than the music itself, which to me actually speaks to the strength of the movie itself as well. Because I think that, to me, also was one of the more interesting parts of that movie. It is a bit of a romance. And I was going to talk about Moulin Rouge within the romantic comedy uh, episode last week. But I'm glad I didn't because the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, no, this isn't a romantic comedy. Like, spoiler alert, but Nicole Kidman bites it in the end. So as a romantic comedy, it's kind of sad. But I agree. I love the story of it. I think... There's so many elements in it that are really fun and engaging as a story to follow along. You want to see Christian and Satine get together. And, you know, when that consumption hits or that TB that she didn't know she had, cough, cough, it's like you're genuinely sad. You're like, crap, I know they kind of hinted at this at the beginning of the movie, but damn, what the hell? And so I think for a movie that, you know, touts about truth, love, beauty, and freedom, to have a roller coaster of emotion and end on a little bit of a downer, that's the strong artistic choices for me that I really, really respect. And my last point of trivia before I pass it on to your point is the song in the movie uh, that's called Come What May, which is one of my favorite. It's the slower, it's the like operatic, cinematic. It was supposed to be the Oscar winner. And it was submitted for Oscars and it couldn't be considered because Baz Luhrmann had originally wrote it for his movie version of Romeo and Juliet four or five years earlier. And so that movie was actually supposed to contain Come What May. There was a musical sequence he originally created for that Romeo and Juliet movie that was Come What May. And it's all about not being able to come together. And so the fact that they included that in Moulin Rouge, I think is a very nice homage. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would. Uh, that's always my trivia moment where I'm like, oh, that's a Romeo and Juliet song. What? It all comes down to sometimes useless facts. Oh, man, that's like 90% of my body. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if this is time for me, but it, it is kind of funny that we're talking about Romeo and Juliet now because, mm, well, yes. hey, um, segways segways here today. <laughs> you know, the segues are strong. Which you'll never forget till they cart you away when you're a jet. You stay a jet.
obviously, well, maybe not obviously. I mean, I don't want to take it for granted. West Side Story is a classic. We know that. But it's also older than all of us by a good amount. And it was had a Broadway life even before it was adapted for the, the big screen. So, I mean, I, I want to say that the Broadway thing happened in like 57, I think is what I saw when I was like digging around, which is as old as my mom. So, you know, there's that. But for me... West Side Story, and it's something that obviously I didn't see when it was out. I think I remember seeing it on one of the, like the major public channels when I was a kid or something because like yeah we definitely didn't have cable, um and it was something that I remember they would show pretty frequently like and I don't remember if it was like a certain holiday or something that would trigger it but like you know it came on and for me it was kind of like there's so many things that I didn't quite understand at that time when I was watching it, I barely had a concept of my own self in terms of, you know, sort of being this black Latino dude, because I didn't really get the Latino part. Like as a, a kid in my neighborhood, you know, I'd always get like, hey, are you mixed? And I sort of got what that meant, but I didn't really understand like how many different ways you could be mixed. So the answer for me was actually yes, but I hated to say that because, you know, people assumed that that was like black and white. And it's like, hey, there's more to that story than that. But that also triggers a whole bunch of things for me, too, because, you know, like the Latino part is not that's so nebulous. Right. I mean, they're 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 white Latinos. They're indigenous Latinos. They're black Latinos. There's so many different combinations of those things. So it's like I didn't have any sense of that as a kid, like none. And then I don't think when I saw uh, West Side Story on TV, like I had been exposed to Romeo and Juliet yet. Right. Like, so I didn't know that there was this like sort of a modern adaptation of a, a classic sort of theme. I just saw it as a gang story with a little bit of otherness sprinkled in because I, I didn't, you know, like I was seeing Rita Morena in this which I recognize from like the electric company and like, you know, early Sesame street stuff. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well I'm, I'm going with this, but I think the music for me was just, it was really, really cool. Yes, could. Something's coming. Something good. If I can wait, something's coming. I don't know. I guess on some level, whether I realize it or not, I kind of always liked jazz. And I had seen some other theater stuff that, you know, I mean, I like the sound of music or whatever. So that sort of style of singing didn't strike me as anything unusual. But I mean, the story in that is very, very cool. And now listening back to all the music from that, especially in preparation for this record, it, it reminded me of like themes that it hit that... I wasn't mature enough to grasp at the time, but I could totally relate to now. The America song, <laughs> I kind of like, I, I giggled at very like different points of that song because, I mean, like they were talking about in 1961 stuff that we're still talking about mm -hmm. all the freaking time. I mean, like, for example, one of the lines was, life is all right in America if you're all white in America. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, back then that was... An understanding and they weren't even talking about like blackness wasn't even in the west side story so this had nothing to do with that this was basically white versus what the world saw puerto rican-ness as lots of new housing with more space lots of doors slamming in our face i'll get the terrace apartment 
better get rid of your accent. Life can be frightening. Yeah, it's just this notion that there's <laughs> things are kind of screwed up, you know, and the fact that that could be a divide, and then you add sort of this whole gang thing, which it now I look back at it, and that part's kind of absurd. Like, you know, what sort of what sort of gang fights exist with like musical like uh <laughs> you know in the background that that part's kind of bizarre to me in retrospect but all that stuff went over my head as a kid i i just i saw it for what it was and i'm not the obviously i'm not the only one who thought of that music as pretty spectacular it's one of those things where you can easily find and pick up that music today and that's not i mean that i guess is a testament to how popular it still is even if you know you've got you know gen y gen z and whatever comes after that i'm not quite sure at this point that are still like sort of digging on it because it's really just great music you know like the maria song i think like even if you have no latino latina latinx folks in your life like the theme of that song that you could just sort of pick up on that no matter who you are really it's like that sort of that brand new love feel that they really capture in a song very very well maria i just kissed a girl named maria and suddenly i found how wonderful a sound can be just sort of like the the scattiness of like I'm, i think i'm butchering the name but it's like play it cool boy like you know like the the cool go crazy like i don't know if, what the actual title of that song is i should have looked it up but like i just sort of dug the scattiness of that but ironically that is kind of in the middle of a, a tumultuous uh gang fight boy boy crazy boy get cool boy Got a rocket in your pocket. Keep cool, cool boy. Don't get I don't know. There's a lot that I really, really appreciate about that. And I didn't choose it because it was popular. I didn't, I mean, but it is. I didn't choose it because practically everybody knows it. And the fact that, you know, Steven Spielberg's apparently doing a remake of it. Didn't even know that. Like, it just, it's one of those few musicals to me that struck a chord that has remain struck up to this day you know several years later so i mean i'm curious uh, what you all think of the music from that soundtrack but but to me and oh another thing that i found out when i was like doing research for this the the guy who actually did the score i mean or uh, leonard uh, bernstein this was kind of it for him like you know i kind of expected to do some digging and find like oh he had been behind all these other musicals yeah. that were like a big deal no not so much i mean i think he had a a handful of other things that were kind of notable but not like uh, west, side west side story, story was like his opus like it's the big one um so who knew but it wasn't opus though what a, what a way to go out i mean, really, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's yeah. your one that's the one that you want where you've got your music and sondheim lyric lasting all the way up into today i mean heck that's a resume in itself yeah, so, I mean, I think that's all I have to say, unless I'm, like, reacting to something you guys say, but, like, that's one of the reasons I chose that, and I felt like I had to talk about it. The funny thing for West Side Story for me is I've never actually seen a movie of it, or the movie of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, I know the music because I think, you know, culturally and pop culture-wise, there's no way to avoid West Side Story. So um, I couldn't tell you a name of a song, but I know that I have listened to the music of West Side Story. And 
nothing really ever grabbed me about it. There was never any moment where I was like, oh yeah, I've really got to like see this. And I've actually been on dates with men and I've told them that I haven't seen West Side Story and their homosexual alarms go off. And I swear to God, I even had one guy take me to a uh, Best Buy back in the day and bought me the DVD of West Side Story. I didn't watch it. I, I, I don't know where it is right now. But I feel really bad that I haven't given it a chance. Because I don't think I really understood or even knew how much of an experience from somebody, you know, from a Latinx experience or from a specific Puerto Rican experience... I didn't realize that that was a major part of this story, to be honest. I knew that there was gang rivalry, and I knew that there was the Romeo and Juliet aspect of it. But when you said that uh, lyric of, you know, everything's America's all right if you're all white, I was like, what? Mm -hmm. No way. I was like, I did not know that there was... And I wouldn't even call that political commentary. Uh, like, I think nowadays, that's just, like, just speaking truth. It's just talking about what reality is and so for me i think right now even this discussion uh i'm really excited to actually see west side story for the first time because i don't think i've given it enough understanding i don't think i i really gave it a chance because i always just was like oh that's that musical that everybody loves and i'm like i don't know what it's about so even this conversation and you know i know that steven spielberg has made a new movie and it's getting a lot of really good reviews and a lot of the information i'm reading online is that he actually has made a definitive version of west side story so hearing how important it was to you i'm like wow i think i'm really ready to receive west side story in a movie form <laughs> We'll see what Steven Spielberg has done with. So, so Anthony, you're going to watch the Spielberg one? Yeah, like, I'm going to watch the Spielberg okay. version as my first one. Interesting. And then okay. I'll watch the original version, and then I can compare, and I can be like, well, he didn't do a good job. <laughs> well, I'm open to seeing another adaptation of it. I mean, like, maybe it could be great. Like, I don't know that it was necessarily begging for one, but, I mean, if it's a way of keeping it, relevant for another 50 years for like another several generations or whatever i'm with it but yeah like yeah anthony the white versus sort of puerto rican thing in new york was like a huge aspect i mean yeah you have these two rival gangs the jets and the sharks and you have again very romeo and juliet-esque i mean like it's not the what is it the uh montagues, montagues. And the montagues i can remember the other ones like the montagues <laughs> came straight to me but like the capulets. whatever yeah, capulets yeah. there we go but yeah there was all of that now we could talk about the fact that natalie natalie wood was playing like maria or whatever and like she's the main character and she's freaking russian again you know yeah. hollywood at that mm -hmm. time a very different place than even the complaints that folks have about it now but that aside it's essentially the whiteness non-whiteness and sort of a 60s version of what being puerto rican in new york is like versus like mixing with uh other folk mm -hmm. yeah i yeah i'm really excited to give it a listen and give context to some of the music i know so for me, the music was the first thing I knew about it, because classically, it is one of those musicals that is constantly referenced. I mean, there's even the in Anger Management with Adam Sandler and Jack Nicholson, they sing I Feel Pretty to one another. That's his like song to get him calmed down. I mean, it's pulled right from West Side Story. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's ubiquitous in the idea that it is kind of that musical that you can reference constantly. Like all roads lead to West Side Story, basically. So I saw the movie a little bit later in life, 
And I think I understood the Romeo and Juliet aspect. I understood elements of that idea of what it's like to be a non-white individual in New York City. But of course, for me, like it's not a personal reflection. I can't I can't get into it as a yes, I, I agree, because obviously being white in Canada, I don't experience that. So I think it'll be interesting to see it in relation to what's been happening now. I mean, you've got someone like Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is pulling in the Puerto Rico experience into a lot of his work and now Spielberg doing another take on it. It'll be interesting to see the same dynamics that were affecting the US and Latinx and Puerto Ricans in the 60s reflected all the way up until today. The musical itself is fantastic. Like it is an amazing musical. And I think it really, it it is the gold standard. It is right up there as being one of the greatest, if not the greatest. And we can get into a debate about what are the fantastic songs, or like what makes a fantastic musical, but this has everything. It has like legendary actors doing amazing things. I mean, Rita Moreno, God love her, still with us, still kicking, doing amazing things. And an EGOT winner for, for some of her work in here. And and like you said, with the electric company, like she is ubiquitous to my childhood as well. Like being there with the Muppets, with Sesame Street, with, with this now into my 30s and now into my 40s. So, I mean, there's a, a huge cast element of this i don't think anybody could do it better it'll be interesting to see what happens with the spielberg component the the songs are unbelievable like you said jason like bernstein there this is it this is pretty much it sondheim lyrics bernstein music i mean that is an amazing duo and they just knocked it out of the park i don't know that i necessarily consider myself the greatest fan of musicals per se but yeah i definitely dig west side story a lot you know and i mean and yeah, I guess even more recently, I think uh, Rita Morena kind of stepped in it for something she said about, uh, you know, like something Lin-Manuel uh, was doing, like in terms of how diverse the like the the Latin, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversations about Latinidad, uh, you know, like sort of who can claim it, who gets left yeah. out of that, because it's like, you know, there's colorism there too, right? And she's a fairly fair skinned puerto rican woman but you know there are folks that are much darker of puerto rican descent and you know I, anyways all that to say that i think that for the time even tackling that in the freaking 60s is amazing but you know obviously there's a lot of evolution on that to come but i didn't even necessarily grasp all that as a kid i just i thought it was a really great love story um Agreed. and obviously a tragic one mm-hmm Continuity. Apparently, we all love musicals where people die in it. Hey, it works. <laughs> yeah, and well, okay, and then that is the the I guess the final segue <laughs> into the very last one that I'll talk to talk about uh, Hamilton. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman? Dropped in the middle of a forgotten... I don't know if I resisted seeing Hamilton for a long time, but I think for all the hype that it got, it was something that I was like, yeah, I'll see it eventually. And when I did see it, what I'll say is, and unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to listen to the mixtape that came out after, like, the actual soundtrack. Like, you know, so I'm really just reacting to the musical itself and the songs in it. I feel like Hamilton is... 
This is sort of a hot take because I'm like I enjoyed it, but it's not like the music isn't all that standout-ish to me. Like to me, this kind of feels like in a really elevated form of all those teachers that wanted to incorporate hip hop into telling a history lesson. They're all like a bunch of clumsy examples of like some teacher trying to like do storytelling using rap, and it like comes off just like really, really <laughs> so awkward. awkward. <laughs> Hamilton actually they got it right I mean you know like I found the music pretty well done in telling the stories throughout Hamilton's relationship with Burr you know just his relationship with uh his loves the one he had the one he wanted I I I think it was all really well done but I don't necessarily see any of those songs even the one that everybody talks about as far as not missing my shot like I don't see any of those as standouts in the way like I don't think people are going to be talking about those songs in the same way that we're talking like we just got through talking about like the songs from West Side Story that's plenty scratch that this is not a moment it's the movement where all the hungriest brothers with something to prove went foes oppose us we take an honest stand we roll like Moses claiming our promise that said I found it was a like I found Hamilton to be a really entertaining musical but you know that that's kind of where it begins and ends with me I do feel like I heard some, you know, people that I respect, artists I respect, talking about the mixtape a lot and actually participating with the mixtape, which is why I'm a little sad that I didn't get a chance to listen to that before this record. But that having said, just judging it on the merits of the music contained in the musical itself, it was all right. I'm loving this take that the Hamilton troupe is like that assembly that would go from school to school. It's like, hey, fellow kids, it's time to make history cool. I mean, it kind of is, but it, it like without any of that awkwardness, like, you know what I mean? Like, but that's essentially what they did. They did that well. So what'd you guys think? Because I'm pretty sure you've both seen it, right? Like, Absolutely. I, yeah. So okay. so I consumed it probably the way that everybody consumed it. It's when it came out on Disney+. Plus. There was no way I was going to see this live because A, ticket prices are crazy. It did. I don't think it was in Toronto for a, any period of time. I'm not going down to New York, COVID, yada, yada. Like it was just, it wasn't going to happen. So I was able to see it through Disney+. Plus. And it's great that they did that because it was finally time for me to see this, what everybody was talking about, this kind of huge production multiple tony winners like taking lin-manuel miranda not only from his success from in the heights but like blowing it up so in watching it i enjoyed it i really did enjoy hamilton i think i gravitate more towards the songs that are more of that classic musical style i think the skylar sisters i think that's they have amazing voices i think it's it, it, there's lots of good wordplay in there it's fun I think the big take in this kind of comes from discussions between my wife and I is that I don't think Lin-Manuel Miranda is a particularly good singer. I don't think he has a great voice. He, of course, he wrote it. He created it. He should be in it somewhere to take on the role of Alexander Hamilton. Sure, by all means. I think all of the other cast members are fantastic. And um, David Diggs, like, he steals the show for me. I think he is unbelievable in anything that he does in there. But it, it's great. I, I like it. Do I think that it is going to be continued on? I think probably a little bit more than you think, Jason. My big concern, though, is how it's going to be continued on. And I think the way that it is, it's going to be done in high school productions 
for decades and decades to come. And a lot of those kids are like when I was young. They are a group of white kids. I fear that's what's going to happen with Hamilton. It's going to be a whole lot of white kids doing some terrible rap for high school productions because it's a big name and they know they're going to get the draw into it. But that's what the legacy is going to be of Hamilton. It is what it is. I mean, you put something out there, you produce it, you create it, you send it out. It, it is kind of taken from this point on, however it's going to be taken. But I think that's what the legacy is going to be. Maybe not this epic musical that changed the way and did so many fantastic things. Like it was quality. It had its time. But yeah, I fear the, the legacy of Hamilton is going to be a little bit more whitewashed. That's probably fair. Yeah. And that's one of the things that uh, comes to mind when I think of Hamilton. My experience is I've actually not watched it yet. I have listened to the music, oh, wow. and it's because I was actually at a lane swim, and this was like probably five or six years ago, and uh, there was music playing when I was swimming, and I couldn't get enough. I'm like, it was like every time I came up for a breath of air, I was like, what the hell is this? And so I got out of the pool, and I asked the like lifeguard, I was like, what are you playing? It's phenomenal. And she's like, it's the Hamilton soundtrack. And I was like, what's Hamilton? Like, I've never heard of this musical. And it had just kind of right before the Tonys. Um, and it kind of just before it blew up and became the huge monster of a pop culture thing it was. So I really got into the music before, like, I kind of as it was becoming this huge thing. One of the interesting experiences about why I haven't watched the movie is that is because I started to watch it with my partner Salem. Uh, Salem is from Syria and he immigrated here as a refugee. And so when we first started watching it, there were so many historical references that he couldn't understand. And then actually about 10 minutes into it, I had to stop and be like, okay, I need to explain to you what's going on in this play. Because as a histor as a historical story, they're playing with history right now. And that isn't evident to somebody who doesn't know the history. So the thing with Hamilton for me is, as a, a North American person, I have done history lessons about what happened and what went down. And so, like, for me, that gave a context that I was able to enjoy Hamilton. But I think there's a limited understanding and reception of Hamilton that can start and end with different experiences. And so even this take that, you know, Hamilton is going to be one of those musicals that I'll probably live on, which I do agree with. I think there's going to be a little bit of rewriting of history and a little bit of reestablishment of white powers that this play was really trying to kind of play with and take down. So I haven't gone back to watch the musical yet, but I am interested in this take of it because all I constantly hear is how Hamilton is the greatest musical that's ever been written. But to hear like different discussions about what's going on with the, the history of Hamilton and how it's kind of going to live on. I think that to me is a really interesting take on this that I'm going to be really interested to see how this musical kind of evolves over the next 10 to 15, 20 years. Maybe it's also given us an in because what my wife and I were discussing is how we were talking about what, what we're probably going to talk about during the Broadway episode that we do eventually. And it was just this idea that tickets are extremely expensive. And that's one of the huge deterrents of going to something like Hamilton, like tickets blew up when they realized what was being created and they heard kind of the the trial runs of it and ticket tickets went to like thousands of dollars to get in and that then makes 
theater and art, which is typically for the masses, elitist. And who typically can afford going to Broadway? It's old, rich, white people. Like, typically, you don't see a lot of diversity in the seats at a Broadway show because it is very classist because the ticket prices get so crazy expensive. So it'll be interesting to see if Disney Plus and now, like, having the success of Hamilton come out, and I'm sure it was a pandemic component, but maybe this is now going to broaden the horizons of, of the musical theater. I guess it's anyone's guess. I, you know, I'll just say that I've never actually gone to Broadway to go see anything. I think to the extent that I've seen any Broadway plays, if they weren't adapted for TV, would be sort of the off-Broadway circuit. And chances are, I mean, you know, that's how I saw Wicked. I, you I, saw off-Broadway Wicked? Yes, it was at the no. uh, Kennedy Center uh, in D.C., which was, you know, it was... I went mainly for my wife's sake because she really wanted to see it, but I, you know, quite as kept, I did actually enjoy it. Um, I want to talk more about that on our Broadway episode. We we do. I'm really fascinated with Wicked and an off-Broadway production. Ooh, that sounds shivers down my gravitating spine. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, who knows how that'll change uh, post-pandemic, but I mean, for me that, you know, just like, well, if it's big enough and it makes the off, off-Broadway circuit, I mean, I'm for it. But yeah, I'm not (laughs) making a three and a half, four hour trip up to New York to spend exorbitant amounts of money to go see that and then like have to stay at a super pricey hotel in that area, you know, to turn around and drive four hours back down here. So, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just me. I was just going to say, I'm just really excited that Lin-Manuel Miranda is making music. Because I love the Moana soundtrack. Uh, like, that's something I didn't even touch on. I'm saving that for my Disney entries. Um, mm. But uh, he's also got another Disney um, musical coming out called Encanto. Um, and, uh, again, he's done the original score and, and music that for it. Really and like, good, by the way. It mm. does look really good. And I, I've watched that trailer, like, four times. And I was like, the, the music is infectious. I don't even know... What is going to be included in that soundtrack? But Hot Damn is that on a, you know, I really like his music. I really enjoy it. I think he's got a good ear. Um, so God bless Lin-Man- Lin-Manuel Miranda. You're, they're not just giving out Peabody Awards to any old person. He is going to be a mainstay for quite some time. And, and in any field that he's doing it, like the work that he's already done with Disney and, and Pixar and all of them, I think it's great. And if he continues on in that thread and he continues to do his kind of musical theater stuff, I mean, all the better for it. I mean, he's providing us with some really interesting stuff to talk about. That's for sure. Death don't discriminate between saints and saints. Saints, saints, saints. Yeah, we keep living anyway. Well, I think that was a great conversation. Thank you to you both for, for providing your favorites from the world of musical theater and musicals in general. But uh, one of the other things we wanted to talk about on this episode was what we think stands out as kind of that all-time best song from a musical and if either of you've got a a, an honorable mention there that you want to provide by all means i think what i would like to put out there actually what the heck was i gonna come up i didn't even write it down i'll start with mine first yes there we go go ahead (laughs) so my honorable mention is off the beaten path which i mean are we surprised at this point i have a brand i play into it so my honorable mention is from the classic 2005 movie Hamlet 2. 
Oh, oh, good. So I like movies that have musical elements when they're not mainly musicals. So when all of a sudden you have like this comedy that busts into a musical number, I really appreciate that because I think it's a clever way to either culminate to a joke or bring a joke to a next level. And in Hamlet 2, it's really this uh, story about this uh, high school teacher who's down on his luck and he ends up uh, getting a new crop of students and they're going to write this play and it's called Hamlet 2 and it's all about Hamlet time traveling with Jesus to stop the deaths in Hamlet 1. And when they finally get it to production, you see the opening number and it is heavenly it's transcendent it's called rock me sexy jesus and it's all about how jesus is a one badass motherfucker who goes back in time and so I have to give honorable mention to Hamlet 2 and Rock Me Sexy Jesus, but hot damn, is that one of my favorite musical numbers of all time? Because even to this day, I'll just bust it out every once in a while, and you know that you've truly found someone special when they sing back to Rock Me, Rock Me, Sexy Jesus. Nice. I, I had kind of a, a bit of a time trying to think about what mine would be. I think I've come up with one that I would pick as being right up there. And then I've got a, an honorable mention for a song that we haven't mentioned. So I think the pick that I'm going with has got to be Can You Feel the Love Tonight from The Lion King. Oh, yeah. I, I think as we talk about sort of the legend of kind of the musical and, and if it's if it's characters kind of bursting out in a song where dialogue would typically be like that transition into there, I think is amazing. And I think everything that's being done there is great. I, I would say if it's not that it is Circle of Life. And I think what Hans Zimmer did with that score, it's his only Oscar and what he was doing there was unbelievable. But I think Can You Feel the Love Tonight is probably right up there for me. And then from the classic Broadway stage, I would would say I could have danced all night from My Fair Lady. That's probably my wife's pick. I really did enjoy My Fair Lady the first time I saw it. Completely out there, Audrey Hepburn doing amazing things. And I think I could have danced all night is really, really great. And that song, I think, is a great kind of point to shout out kind of the people who sang for the actors behind the scenes. There's a lot of really great history about who the voices were for these famous characters. So who sang for Audrey Hepburn and My, My Fair Lady and a few characters, Natalie Wood in West Side Story. I think there's some really interesting stuff there. And I would mm, definitely yeah. encourage people to research who the actual voices were behind some of the legendary songs there. I could have danced all night I could have danced all night and still have begged for more I could have spread Well, it took me a fair amount of time to like sort of go through all the, the musicals that I think I've ever been exposed to. The one song that I think from any musical that kind of stands out as like the song that everybody knows, and I think rightfully so, is, uh, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. Um, oh my God. I, yes. I think <laughs> that when I think about like the sort of classic, uh, I'm, I'm reaching for another word that I'm like struggling for, yeah, that's on the tip of everybody's tongue. I think that that song has a special power that maybe not even Dreamgirls as a musical does separately. Like, it's, I, I don't, I mean, I, it, it's just, it's one of those things. Like, and maybe this is where my, like, love for uh, Jennifer Holiday and, like, Ally McBeal sort of, like, started from. But just, like, 
just i don't know like or i mean obviously i think the fact that she was there is in no small part to what she did in dream girls right like i mean i think that's like the fact that she has this big amazing voice uh that she brought to that song probably is what landed her there in the first place to be sure but yeah there's there's just something about that song that it's such a standard and such a classic that it's like you at least in the soul world you can be judged where somebody attempts to sing it and it's like well okay either they are an amazing and hold on a second i'm gonna pause (laughs) for my dog to get it under control Daisy, what in the world? Does Daisy have an opinion? Uh, Daisy's got something right about it. <laughs> I think Daisy's telling you, and I am not going yeah. to sit here and let you talk while not taking me for a walk. It, it, it could be that. It could be that she really needs to go outside. Daisy, let me finish this thought. You know, people are judged on the strength of their singing ability, on how well they can actually render that song on their own. And... I think people will continue to be judged on their ability to sing that song if they have the balls or, you know, not balls, the the lady parts to uh, to go for it themselves. But as far as honorable mentions go, there are actually quite a few. Um, and I'm probably going to say some things that maybe don't necessarily resonate with everybody else. One song that has always stuck out to me is the Feed Me Seymour that stands out. Totally. Um, a couple others that I think are important to mention is uh, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. Mm, yeah. While it may not get the attention anymore, I mean, I think the folks that saw, because what that was from. Oh, no, I know exactly. Not, and I was going to say Oklahoma, and I'm like, that's wrong. It's, no, um, it's like, South Pacific, right? Uh, yes. South, yeah, yeah, South Pacific. Like, I think the generation that sort of was exposed to that, they know it but it's not necessarily something that lives on still but like that's another one and then sunrise sunset from uh fiddler on the roof Uh, like i think those are all like that deserve kind of special places in like musical history Mm -hmm. honorable mentions for me i would say from little shop suddenly seymour i think is fantastic and i'm gonna have to go with i don't know how to love him from jesus christ superstar which is I think a terribly underrated um, musical. It is so good. And the the movie version of it is fantastic. They have some unbelievable performers with voices you have not heard in some time. Uh, I think I am going to give my final shout out to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode of Once More with Feeling. That was my original choice. Um, for one of the musicals I was going to cover, but uh, I will say that that episode in season six, Once More with Feeling, is probably one of the um, precursors to something like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I think there is a really a lot of smart music writing in mm-hmm. that episode uh, and a lot of great ways to convey emotion through song which to me is a sign of a really strong musical. So one other thing that I think deserves an honorable mention, there was an episode in Scrubs where the character had like some disorder where they were hearing everything in song and like they had a musical episode. That was freaking brilliant. It was. So I don't know the name of the episode, but that I think deserves an honorable mention. Good call. Yes. I I totally have heard about that. Never seen it, but often in uh, musical discussions, that episode always, comes up it's very good
fantastic conversation as usual. I think we really got into the topic well there, really personalized it. I appreciate both of you for for what you brought to the table here and providing just a look into what you really enjoyed about the musical genre, whether it was something that you were really embracing, if you were a theater kid like me, if you had no association whatsoever. I think there's lots to enjoy and appreciate when it comes to musicals. The jukebox musical, the, the original, the classical one based on Broadway. I mean, I think there's a lot to talk about, and I'm sure we are going to continue the same conversation into our Broadway episode whenever we get there. Who knows? It's a little teaser. As we are looking at the, the segues extremely well, that's going to segue into a future episode extremely well. We want your interactions with us and our episodes via our social media accounts. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at EvenTheScorePod. We really do have a, a lively discussion there. Whenever we kind of release an episode, we have great sort of stuff to put out there, and we want to hear from you any way, shape, or form that you can. So go ahead and let us know via our social media accounts. Follow us and talk with us there. Or if you wanted to go the more old school route and just drop us a line, you can send it to our email address at eventhescorepodcast at gmail.com. We would really appreciate to hear from you that way as well. Um, when it comes to our episodes, though, we want you to listen, we want you to subscribe, and we want you to rate and review. Go ahead and find us on your podcast app of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on Amazon. Amazon now has their stuff out for podcasts. So I believe it's Amazon Music. Um, is what they're calling it. So find us wherever you're consuming this stuff. We really do appreciate it. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Five stars would be fantastic. And that really does help us with the charts here. It gets our, our episodes out to more people. Another way that you can do that, though, is by sharing our episodes as well. So if you have a, an active Twitter account or Instagram account, go ahead and share our episodes there. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Um, we want you to utilize our new sponsor here. Of course, we want you to go to manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. Utilize the promo code SOUNDTRACK for 20% off your first order and free shipping worldwide. Support our show by utilizing that code and telling Manscaped that you really want us to continue on with this relationship for our sponsorship. We really do appreciate Manscaped for coming on. Our first sponsor of the podcast, so we're doing something right. Um, so, exactly. So please, by all means, uh, find their fantastic products. We can only speak highly about what we've already utilized, and you'll hear us talk about it uh, in subsequent episodes i am sure and i hope for si some time to come but of course for your balls <laughs> and your mind will follow <laughs> perfect perfect way to summarize exactly what you should be utilizing manscaped for of course i cannot be more grateful to my co-hosts here anthony and jason for being here thank you very much to you both oh sure my pleasure yeah, as always, it's been great. Always a blast. Until next time, everyone, we appreciate you listening to the Even the Score podcast. Take care. Cocaine is a hell of a drug.